If you would turn in your copy of Scripture to Judges chapter 12, Judges chapter 12, we're going to be finishing up looking at the judge of Jephthah. Um, And uh, one of the primary points that I've been trying to drive home about the book of Judges is that this is a book for the church. This is not just a book for them over there. (laughs) This is not a book just for Israel, but this is by God's power and through His providence. He's bound this text into a book called the Bible, and this is for the book of God's people called the Bible. And so this is for the church. It's not just Israel's mishaps and tendency to drift away from God and adopt the culture's way of navigating the world. This is all of God's people's tendency, not just Israel, but indeed the church. And I've been at pains over the last couple weeks to show that how the church has largely abandoned the way of Jesus in adopting the culture's way of living and navigating in this world. Without thinking about it, you and I can slowly begin to add on the culture's way of being onto Jesus' way. We don't do it on purpose, just like Israel didn't do it on purpose. Just co-opted a few things and said, yeah, I'll, I'll use a little bit of that and a little bit of that and mash that up with some Jesus and I'm still a Christian. And we don't see that throughout Scripture. And you and I, and I see it in my own heart and probably you do as well, that we put our confidence in many, many things. Not just on Jesus, but we put our confidence in a political party or in a particular practice that could be helpful, but is not Jesus. We can put confidence in our schooling choices or that I only listen to a certain kind of music and I can't believe anybody would choose that and do that. And then we begin to add on to the gospel of Jesus the things that are not of Christ. And in many ways, we easily gravitate toward a power struggle with the world seeking to wrench control of it and forgetting that the way of Jesus calls to an otherworldly way of being in it. We saw last week in the life of Jephthah that he used religious language that you and I can be guilty of, using religious language to get what he really wanted, which was power and prestige, notoriety, admiration, affirmation. Take your pick of adjective. But Jephthah use religion to get what his heart was really after. One of the Protestant reformers uh, named Martin Luther, uh, one of his greatest contributions is uh, in something called the Heidelberg Disputation. The Heidelberg Disputation. And he termed the antithetical nature of the way of the world and the way of Jesus by calling it a way of glory and the way of the cross. And I would encourage you to go read it. It's a very, very simple read, but it'll, you know, there are little sentences, and each time you read it, you're like, oh my goodness, this is heavy. And so I would encourage you, it's called the Heidelberg Disputation. And in that, he talks about the way of, the, way of glory, which is our heart's gravitational pull is one towards glory, one towards putting someone else under our thumb, one of saying, I'm right, you're wrong, get in line. And then there's the way of the cross, which says that God works in the secret way. God works in the silence. God works in the quiet way. God works in the mundane. God works in the places that you don't observe readily. 
God works in imperceptible and invisible ways. That is God's way. And in fact, one uh, theologian said it this way, is that according to Martin Luther and according, according to this Heidelberg Disputation, that uh, the cross is not just the mechanism for salvation. It is that, but it's not just that. It's not just the mechanism of salvation, but a fundamental principle about life and about God. The cross is the revelation of the foolishness of God, the weakness of God, which is stronger than men. And that is the way that you and I are called to live. When Jesus said, take up your cross and following, follow me, he wasn't just saying that's a good idea. He said, this is the way to follow me is by taking up a cross and walking in the way of it. And it's hard to admit, but our human tendency is to long for glory, is to long for being right and everybody else being wrong. We want respect we want power, we want admiration, we want affirmation from people all around us, and we will do whatever we can to get it. And in our passage today, we're going to be uh, seeing these two ways of being which form the structure of the sermon. There's just two points to support what I believe is a faith-filled faithfulness. So the main point, if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you, my, my preaching is in such a way that note-taking is helpful, um, because you may find like... Oh, I'm not sure where we're at, so I, I give you points, and the main point of the passage is this, faithfulness ain't fancy. Faithfulness ain't fancy. You can say it however you want, but I kind of like the uh, alliteration. Um, I spent a lot of time on that one, uh, but faithfulness ain't fancy, and we're going to see it in two ways. We, we're going to see it in the, the way of glory and the way of, what do you think? Response, we're going to do some reader response here. The cross, the way of the cross. So those are our two points, way of glory and the way of the cross. And I think as I was trying to get my mind around it, and I've, I've been at pains to explain this a lot of times, that I can just say, well, Jephthah just demolished the Ephraimites. That's the main point. Well, yes, at one level. But as you consider, what is the main point of the text? And then what is the main po point of the text for us in today's world right now? I believe it, that faithfulness ain't fancy. And a lot of times we want to paint faithfulness as something that is out there beyond us and it's something grandiose. The Lord says, no, it ain't like that. It's really easy to want our theology all buttoned up and to indict those who don't agree with us. I do it. I have done it. I probably will do it, as do all of us. And it's really easy for us to believe that our convictions ought to be everybody else's convictions. I'm not talking about foundational orthodox beliefs. I'm talking about convictions. And it's tempting to believe that revival is big and grandiose. And sometimes it is, but that's not the only way that revival comes. In fact, revival comes, and as we see in the history of the church, that revival is something that's wrought in the heart and has effects out in the public. It's an inside-out reality, not an outside-in action. That is what revival is. And so if we want to see revival in our world, we have to start with our own hearts and ask God to till up the soil that so oftentimes gets hardened by cynicism and skepticism. So, Let's look at uh, verses 1 through 7. This is, if again, you're taking notes, the way of glory, verses 1 through 7. And I want you to see the comparison and contrast between Jephthah and the minor judges that we're going to be seeing here in a moment. Judges chapter 12, verse 1. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, 
Again, they're fighting against the Ammonites, just to give you some context. And uh, they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Hey, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and didn't call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And when he said, No, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized that Ephraimite and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So the way of glory, we see this on full display, what the way of glory looks like. We see it both in the Ephraimites and in Jephthah. The Ephraimites took issue with Jephthah, annihilating the Ammonites without their help. They didn't get any credit for it, and they were really upset about it. I mentioned this a little last week, but when our egos are puffed up, to borrow the Apostle Paul's language, when our egos are puffed up and offended, then we often go over the top with our reactions, don't we? We oftentimes get not only, usually, I mean, maybe this is a little public confession, but when my wife brings something to my attention, I don't typically say, well, thank you. Let me go uh, apply that. You are so kind. I typically say, no, 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 no. No, no, you do this, and you do it ten times more. And you're nodding because you do it too, and it's okay. It's a safe place. It's a safe place. Do you do it with people in, in your co-work, in where, you, where you work at, with your coworkers? Maybe you did the TPS report like it should be. But they didn't, they, they said, no, 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 you didn't, you didn't crunch that number right. No, you know, and your, your initial reaction is to not just say, no, well, if you could obviously see here, we can see in column four that this goes like, no, you get really angry, don't you? And that is a, a glimpse of what it looks like when our egos are punctured. Because what does a balloon do when it's puffed up and it's punctured? It explodes. And that's what the Ephraimites are doing when there was a discrepancy, right? They, they got really frustrated. And look at, look at what they say. They, they don't say, hey, man, we wish you would have called us. We wanted to help you. We were here to help you. No, they said, hey, man, Jephthah, we're going to burn your house over you with fire. It's a little over the top. Because they wanted credit. They wanted the acclaim that Jephthah wanted for himself, and they did this, you remember, if you remember a few chapters ago in uh, chapter 8, verse 1, they did the same thing with Gideon, didn't they? they? said, hey, Gideon, why'd you go over there and fight against the Ammonites? We wanted to help you, man. Well, they wanted notoriety. They wanted power. They wanted prestige. They wanted glory that was reserved for God himself alone. But we see the same thing in Jephthah, too. 
right? We see the, the way in which Jephthah responded was not just, hey, we're going to have a little civil war skirmish here. No, it is an onslaught, a decimation of the people of Ephraim. And this is what happens when pride gets in the way. And so this, this civil war breaks out, and, and the Gileadites say Shibboleth, but the Ephraimites cannot say Shah. It's kind of like if you're from Louisville. It's Louisville, not Louisville, right? If you're um, from Minnesota, it's called a hot dish and not a casserole. Little known fact. Brownies are called squares or bars. It's the same kind of concept here is that you don't belong here, so we're going to slaughter you. And it's not just that they are fighting with one another. There's a heinousness that I was tempted to breathe over, or breeze right over. But how many people do they slaughter? 42,000. That's, 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 that's a significant amount of people. Because if you go to numbers... And I just looked at a few things in the book of Numbers. When they cross over the Jordan, when they're going in to conquest the land, you know how many uh, men of able-bodied in the army were? The number was 40, and this is in Numbers 1. The people of Ephraim, the able-bodied men that were numbered was 40,500. And so obviously with time, more people populate and they get bigger. But this is nearly a decimation, an annihilation of people. This is not just like, hey, we're going to go to war to you. No, we are going to wipe you off the face of the map. You're going to burn my house over me? I'm going to take care of all y'all. That's what's going on here because Jephthah was after the way of glory. He wanted power and prestige. And how do you respond when things don't go the way that you want? That's the question that we have to consider There was no mercy, and our tendency is not to show mercy. We love mercy when it's for me. But when it's for you, there's a whole nother law that I exact against you. And that is the way of glory. When you think about those who disagree with you, rather than seeing as your brothers and sisters made in the image of God, do you find yourself wishing that they were swept off the face of the earth? Have you ever imagined, man, I wish they weren't even around. You would never say it out loud, man, I wish they were dead. But you get really angry with them. <laughs> and you wish that they didn't report to work the next day and you wouldn't care one, one inkling of what happened to them. That's our human tendency is to want to just annihilate whatever. When you consider all the vitriol in the world, are you swept up into it? Do you find your own heart trying to fight against it? Because you have to retaliate from your own heart because your heart, my friend, gravitates towards wanting to hurt the other, the outcast, the sojourner, the one who is less than you. Do you find it easy to malign and name call and wish evil on someone you consider an enemy? And I'm intentionally pausing here for you to engage with that question. Instead of saying, no, 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 I love my enemies. How, how do you treat your enemies? See, that's the way of glory. Way of glory says one thing, but actually lives a totally different way. 
And if we don't call it out, we can go the way of Israel. We can go the way of every other church. We can go the way of every other person who doesn't know God. Seeking to win arguments and to subdue other people and annihilate those who you don't particularly like. The church has got to be careful not to adopt these kinds of relating with others. After all, wasn't it our Lord who forgave his executioners from the cross? Wasn't it our Lord who told us to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies? That is the way of the cross. It is foolishness and it is hard and it is a narrow path. And the Lord says, follow in the way that I have shown you to walk with a cross on your back with a cheek ready to be turned when someone strikes you. And that's our second point, the way of the cross, the way of the cross. This is verses 8 through 15, and I was spending a lot of time on this, and it's like, oh, there's not much said about these guys, these three judges. We kind of breeze over because we spent a chapter and a half on Jephthah. We spent three chapters on Gideon. We're getting ready to spend uh, several chapters on Samson, but not much is said about uh, verses 8 through uh, 15. Um, in chapter 12. And so then, after uh, Jephthah judged Israel six years in verse 7, after him, after Jephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan. He's trying to reconcile with other clans. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibsen died and was buried at Bethlehem. You're going to want to put a, a note there for when we go back to that in, at the end of the story where the Benjaminites are just utterly decimated. This is a foretaste of what's coming. So just put a pin in this for later. And notice some of the same contours of what are happening here. But then verse 11, After him, after Ibsen, Elon... The Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys. Does that sound familiar from before? And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim, in the hill country of the Amalekites. Now, I was at pains to not read too much into this, and I don't want to do that, so if, I, if you think I do, that's fine. You can disagree with me. But I don't want to read too much into these three minor judges, but it is in stark contrast with what we've seen with all the other nasty ones, all the other failures, right? It's similar to Tola and Jerry. You remember them? You remember what they did? No. But they were two chapters ago in chapter 10, Tola and Jared, where they were given two sentences each. And then Shamgar, you remember him? No. <laughs> chapter 3, Shamgar, two sentences given to him as well. Same story here. There are six minor judges. And these six minor judges are treated the same way. There's not much said about them. Not much at all. And I think there's something very instructive for you and for me as we look at these six minor judges, when you compare them, I believe our takeaway 
our takeaway from these six minor judges that faithfulness is not fancy. It's plodding, P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G, plodding. It's faithfully moving forward, not with a bunch of flashiness, not with sequins, not with fireworks, not with gold, not with silver. It's in the background, making sure that things are taken care of. It's not in the limelight. Faithfulness is the way of moving forward when no one notices and no thank you letters are written. That is a life of faithfulness. It looks like failure a lot of times. It looks like it is insignificant a lot of times, but that is the very place that God works His magic, is in faithful plotting, faithful moving forward, faithfully showing up even when you don't want to. And as you think about your calling, this is something that we talk a lot about here at Redeemer, is that you are, if you are a Christian, indwelt by the Spirit of God, and you are called a priest of God. And you have been given a priesthood. You have been given an appointment by God. And so my question is, what is your disposition in life, but then even as it comes to related to the church, to the work of ministry, because it's not fancy. It's faithfully showing up when others don't. It's preparing a message that only a few or maybe even one person will hear. Faithfulness is cleaning tables when everybody else has enjoyed the fellowship meal. Faithfulness is changing a diaper and having an uncomfortable conversation with someone who hasn't been to church in weeks. It's quiet. Faithfulness is noble. It's hard, and faithfulness is the way of the cross. Faithfulness looks a lot like what Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, verse 7. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me? While I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is Jesus saying, this is not some megachurch pastor. This is not somebody who's saying, hey, show up at 5 o'clock for the, for the setup team, and you're going to stay for four hours and do the teardown. No, this is not that. This is Jesus saying, what is a life of faithfulness look like? It looks like showing up when no one else commends you. Why? Because it is enough that your heavenly Father sees in the dark and commends you. And I don't know if I get that deep down in my bones, and maybe you don't either, where it's like, you know what? Being faithful faithful by not looking at that certain thing that you know you ought not to or by saying that certain thing that you ought not to say, that's enough. When nobody writes an article about you and nobody says, man, you did a great job at having that self-control. Good work. Man, I wish that I was as humble as you are. No, faithfulness looks like your heavenly Father who looks at you and says, my son, my daughter, well done. Have you ever looked at that in text in, your, in the text of Scripture where Jesus, Jesus says, at the end of time when you've been obedient, the Lord says, well done. You're, I must confess, I oftentimes have said, is, is that it? 
You just get it well done. And the point is, is that the infinite creator, your creator, the one who is king over all the earth that we read about a moment ago in our call to worship, the king of all the earth looks at you. He notices you. That's astounding that God is looking at you right now, the one who created all the cosmos, the one who holds it in his hand, the one who who gives his breath to the earth and that we exist because he exists, that one says, well done. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for me? That's the question. That's the question of the life of faithfulness is not going to get all the accolades. But we in our world, we think that that's where God, man, that was awesome. Did you see how many people were throwing their hands up and worshiping God? That is awesome. But that's not the sum and substance of what it means to faithfully follow Jesus. Faithfully following Jesus looks like three guys who just put an air conditioner in the discipleship class. Thank you, by the way. That's what a life following after Jesus is. And they didn't do it so that I would say that either. In fact, I didn't have that in my manuscript. (laughs) I wasn't planning on saying it. But that is what the way of the cross looks like. It says, what can I do without anybody saying... Awesome job. I I can tell you a lot of times, and I've had many conversations both with myself and with others, where it's like, man, nobody showed up to that thing. Stinks, because we offer these wonderful opportunities to get to know one another, but yes, it does stink. But your value is not in how many people show up. Your value is in your faithfulness and saying, my Father in heaven sees me, knows me, loves me, and says, well done. Is that enough? Is that enough for us? My friends, we need to beware of the zeal, the religious zeal that disguises itself as faithfulness. We saw it in the life of Jephthah, and I see it in my own heart, and maybe you see it in your own heart. Beware seeking the head of the table, the place of honor. One of the things that's a telltale sign that someone is ready for ministry is how he or she responds when asked to mop a floor, when asked to clean a toilet, when asked to pick up pizzas for a youth night. That's a telltale sign of whether we really grasp this or not or whether our egos are so big. We say, why would I be asked to clean that toilet? I mean, <laughs> Our human tendency is to only think that when we are seen by others, it counts. But the story of Judges says otherwise. It says you don't want to have a chapter of Judges. You want a couple sentences. He was faithful, and he died. Well done. Ibsen, Elon. And who was the other one? Abdon. Well done. There are two interesting points, and I think these point, at least you get a whiff of what's coming down the, down the pike, not only in, in the book of Ruth and the book of First and Second Samuel and so forth and the whole canon of Scripture, and then finally in the person of Jesus where we want to go. I want you to notice two things here. Notice where Ibsen is from, verse 8. Where is he from? You can, you can respond. That's right. He's from Bethlehem. Who else is from Bethlehem? King David is from Bethlehem. Who else is from Bethlehem? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Jesus, well done, Daryl. Good job. 
Jesus. From an insignificant podunk town, honestly, of Bethlehem and of Nazareth, who other people said, what good can come out of Nazareth? Surely not a miracle worker, surely not God incarnate, but that's how He works in the insignificant places, the nooks and crannies of your life and of my life, of the mundane that everybody looks over. The Lord says, there will be a day when there will be a ruler from Zion who will come out of Bethlehem, who will rule by being hung on a cross. But then second, I want you to notice where Abdon faithfully judged Israel. I said that Ephraimites were almost decimated, and that's significant. In the canon of Scripture, there is always a remnant of faithful people because the Lord works with a remnant. The Lord works with the insignificant, the tiny. Remember Gideon? That's the story in Judges. But throughout salvation history, the Lord says, I pick you because you are small and insignificant. And where does, where does uh, Abdon come from? Verse 15, Pirathon in the land of Ephraim. The Lord preserved an Ephraimite who almost was decimated because he said, I want to raise this one up who was faithful in my house, and I will raise him up so that he can be faithful and save my people. The one who was outcast, the one who was, he said, Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth. The Lord says, I'm going to use that one who looks insignificant, who sounds insignificant, who is somebody that could be decimated. I'm going to choose that one to do my work. And so, friend, what you do as your one person, that one flag that you wave of a ministry that you love and that you want other people to be passionate about, that one flag that you wave, the Lord sees it, and it matters. A lot of times in our culture right now, we don't want to do anything unless other people are with us. The Lord says, no, 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 I want just one person to say, I want to see those who have been trafficked, freed, those who have gone through domestic abuse, those who have been addicted to drugs and addicted to any number of things. The Lord says, I want to see that one stand up and be numbered, be counted, because I see them. God uses the small and insignificant to highlight His ability. His ability, not our ability. Remember Jesus' words. Rejoice and be glad. Your heavenly Father knows and sees your faithful acts when no one else notices. This is the way of the cross, despised and rejected, yet glorious in God's eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person in this room and for this opportunity we've had to look at the book of Judges in this 12th chapter to be reminded that you see the insignificant, that you have told us to go the way of the cross, the way of insignificance, the way of death and resurrection. And we pray, God, that this morning where those who feel a an inkling of desire to wave a flag and say, yes, I want to be faithful, I want to move forward, I want to see this happen. Oh God, would you, by the power of your Spirit, give them courage and faith. We thank you for Jesus who died for us, who loved us and gave himself up for us. Who not only died for us and rose again for us, but indeed gave us his Spirit so that we might see your 
power at work in our lives. We pray now that you would help us as a church to walk forward in faith, faith that isn't fancy, but it shows up because you are there. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.